Welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. My name is Mark Smith and I'm the tech editor of Resident Advisor. This week's exchange is with an indisputable pillar of dance music history. Kevin Saunderson's influence on house and techno is difficult to overstate. Apart from helping to turn house into a global phenomenon with his inner city project, Saunderson's early records and his label KMS laid the blueprint for techno in the late 80s and early 90s. His Reese-based synth sound became a staple of hardcore, jungle and drum bass and remains a defining sound in electronic music, while his pioneering approach to remixing quickly became standard practice in the industry. Now Saunderson is touring the world to celebrate the 30th anniversary of Inner City. He was able to stop by Ari's Berlin office for a conversation with Matt Unicomb covering his plans for the tour, his formative experiences watching DJs like Larry Levan and Ron Hardy, and his response to Inner City's shocking success. As always, you can find our full archive of exchanges on residentadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. The exchange with Kevin Saunderson is up next. only been here one day but the weather's all right you know and uh what can i say man you've been coming here a lot yeah for since, since like 1989 90 you know i came here when the wall was like torn down i got a piece of it when i when i was here at original pace oh yeah, Wait, yeah. they sell these like was, 10 euros now <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah so you know a lot of history it's funny i was thinking like if you're from the u.s like what other professions are there where most of your business happens on in an, on another continent, you know. Like if you're an athlete in the US, right. you do it at home. Yes, right. You know, if you're a rapper or if you're an artist right. or a visual artist, you can spend most of your times in the most of the time in the US. But dance music, it's such a funny. Yeah, th- that means you come over here so often. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It conquered dance music, conquered the world, and in, in a different way, just not pockets of the world, conquered just about the whole world. It just took time for it to happen and then it happened in Europe or in London first and Germany and all those pockets start gravitating towards each other and yes yeah, so we, we come over here more even though America is improved as far as electronic music you know um, still come over here quite a lot the things you're playing at now do you see a connection to these for example a festival in the UK and what was happening in the US in 1992, you know, because I don't know, it wasn't so much a mass, a thing enjoyed by everyone. Yeah. Like, what do you, I don't know, what do you think when you go to the US, uh, when you go to the UK and look out in the crowd? Well, I mean, US was more segregated, different pockets, R&B radio, pop radio, uh, the gay community, uh, and then those who just didn't dance or go out. So Europe, 
I think when I first went to Europe, it was it's just more more open, more less racism, more about people being individuals and people themselves. Where in America, it was totally different. I mean, just because of the history of our country too. But like today, it seems like America is changing as far as dance music has helped bring people together, especially unite people musically. And we have more festivals now and people uh, migrating and enjoying, you know, going out together. It's, 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 it's almost all one, even though like, you know, you have a festival. I mean, even like Coachella, as big as something like that is, you got your main stage, you got your hip hop area. It's still all within. You got your dance, big dance area. And then other stages that's within so uh you know so you know and we have our festival in detroit movement and uh it's it's, it's damn great i mean it's the closest thing that you see that in america that, that reminds you of anything like europe and uh you know just a bunch of great artists great detroit artists great artists from all around the world and you know people come to detroit to dance see how we talk, see how you just mentioned dance music bringing people together how long did it take you to start associating dance music with these big picture things? You know, I'm sure at the beginning it was just about being a nerd and making tunes. When did you start to think that, I don't know, it's m about more than just making club tracks and seeing that it is like a, a socially a very significant thing as well? To be honest, that was really almost from the very beginning because I, I went to school at Eastern Michigan University. Shortly after I started making music, I my vision was the world can dance. Everybody can dance to this music. Now, I didn't necessarily didn't think the world, but I thought like the music was for everybody. So I would go like, I'll give you an example. So when, when I started, when I was a DJ, and I, in my early days of becoming a DJ, I would play for fraternity parties. That's how I got my start. Or I would go hear Eddie Folks play or see Derek play at these parties in Detroit. There's small pockets of kids, but it was all black kids. It was like, whatever, 200, 300 black kids, right? Just really loved the music no matter what we played, you know? Then you had, like, on campus, you had fraternities, other organizations, white fraternities, uh, Greek fraternities. All that was was mixed, you know, because we always going to school together. But the white fraternities and, and those other fraternities did not listen to dance music. It was straight up rock and roll, maybe punk rock. And I keep thinking, like, y'all don't know what you're missing. This music is, is you can dance. It, it brings us all together. So I always had that vision from almost the very beginning. And obviously, we we to that point, you know, many years later, it's, it's to that point where everybody is dancing to music that was our vision, you know, uh, bringing people together. You know, dance music is, is huge. I only realized recently that you were playing sport like quite late into university. Uh, it's cool, actually, because now I don't see so much crossover with dance music and sports. Yeah, it's nice to know that Back then, there was some crossover. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, you know, sports. I think that gave us our drive. You know, especially me and Derek. I don't think Juan played any sports, but me and Derek, we had 
you know, this thing, you know, when you grew up in sports, you could be learning to be disciplined, you learn to practice, you, you, your muscle memory. It's a lot of things involved with sports that do connect to music. Uh, and obviously now that we travel, think about it, we travel the world. What does athletes do? They travel, maybe not necessarily the world, but they travel. If you play in a basketball, you travel in the States, you, you stay in hotels, you getting up, you, you're moving. So there's definitely a lot of connection. And, you know, one thing I learned by sports is, you know, you can bam, you don't break. And that's why Detroit, I think, is still around. You know, we 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 love what we do. We're passionate about what we do. And we might not always be at the top or mo- the most popular, but we we find a way to still stick around and make, make damage be known. I just realized I should have worn a Pistons, uh, <laughs> worn a Pistons shirt. You know, I did the Pistons uh, halftime show this year. Speaking really? Speaking of sports, yeah. So there's another connection. This is the first time this happened. Uh, I did it uh, at halftime. I performed, and I was only like, whatever, 10 minutes, uh, five minutes. It, it went so quick. But I played like three or four records at halftime. They had this great light show. It was cool. It was actually pretty cool. Do you know of any NBA players who know, who know about dance music, about this stuff? I, I, always, I don't. I, I, I don't. Yeah. I don't. But I'm sure there is. You know, the reason I know there's one for sure, I don't know if you know of uh, Grant Long. He played for the Detroit Pistons. He's maybe a little younger than me, I think, and he played because I played basketball too, but I didn't play college level. I played in high school, but he was like a couple years down. But he ended up going pro and played for the Pistons. So I, you know, I know he's on my, he's connected to me as a fan on, on Facebook. So I say, oh, Grant must be following. It's that time too where the music was growing and you know, big fun and good life and all that. But see you, so I know least he's got to be one fan. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah, speaking of the connection, like when you think about sports as well, okay, what athletes like become pro? One, you have to be talented. Two, you'd have you have to have this drive. It's probably not possible to make it to the top without both. And I wonder if dance music is the same. Like you can be amazing with a drum machine, but if you don't want to spend hours and hours doing it every week, no one's gonna hear it. You know? So why do you think you became successful? Do you think it's talent or were you were you so obsessed with making music in the early days? You know, was it just an extreme obsession? You know, like yeah. how were you back then? Yeah, I mean, I probably was 21, somewhere right around there when I first started. I think it, it, it has a lot to do with my determination and my stimulation. It, electronics really blew my mind because... You know, you're so used to seeing a drummer, a bass player, and, you know, they train musicians, know how to read music. And then all of a sudden you find out you can find a way to create music, create your own tracks. And we had to take some baby steps to get to where we got. And it wasn't talent like talent like that in the beginning because we hadn't trained ourselves to get to the level where, you know, part of our talents could shine. Because first you have to understand kind of your your tools that you're working with to even get to that point. But at some point that started happening through the will of really wanting to learn. You talk about getting like 909 drum machines and the instructions made no sense. We might as well just kept that and they converted it to English, but it almost was like you, you didn't even need the, the English conversion because you couldn't even understand what they were trying to tell you to do. So through trial and error, through over and over, trying to figure it out, you know, progressively started learning equipment and got better and made some, so sometimes you made some some mistakes that were great mistakes because you were trying to figure something out. Now it became a skill. Stuff like that happened. Yeah, I see. So how long did it take for you to start making tunes that you were happy with? I mean, the first track, 
I made, I was happy with. Now, what I, I'm not sure if I remember how long it took me to arrive there because it was real basic in the beginning. If I had a drum pattern that I liked, I'd take the drum machine to my parties, mix it in, and play the beats. But after a while, guess what? Just hearing a bunch of drums get boring, right? It's, it's, it becomes too monotonous without nothing else. So, so the next level was let me figure out how to make drums and add a bass line. Then you started, you know, we only had a few. I had two keyboards, so now everything started to sound the same. So now you start learning, how can I create something, a sound, get into the parameters? You start learning about, you know, creating your own sounds and sounding unique. So it it was a process, but it didn't take too long. It it was just a process because it's almost like you had to graduate to get to that point, but you didn't know you were graduating. You just was evolving because of the hours put in. So there was plenty of hours put in. Um, I can't give it a necessary timeline, but I mean, that was my school when I was in school. I stopped going to class. I, I dropped out of school and I was living on campus like I was going to school, but I was just doing music. That's all I wanted to do. When did your parents find out about this? Oh man, she, she, shoot. My mother, she, she, she probably didn't know until I had some success with Big Fun in 88, you know, and I probably started... Well, my first track was made in 87, but I was, you know, DJing like 84 and it began, you know, in 84. So, but yeah, she she didn't know. <laughs> it's interesting that you mentioned this need to have your own sound because I feel like this has been lost maybe as dance music, you know, as the years have gone by. So why was that so important or why is it so important to you now? Well, Yeah, it's still important. It was important because when I was able to create a unique sound, I was able to play something even more unique or come up with a rhythm or be inspired to play something takes you like on a journey. So and you stand out from sounding like a preset sound that somebody else could use. So, you you know, it, it had a few advantages. I think the problem today is. You know, there's a lot of sounds that's been, I mean, I see my Reese bass has been recreated by different synth companies, all kind of stuff. And they call it the Reese bass, right? So. Do you get any money for that? <laughs> no. No, no question. For that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, no, no. I don't get the money for that. But uh, uh, it's amazing because technology, as much as I love it, it can be damaging too because it can make people lazy and make things very easy. And somebody can go make a track in 10 minutes and and, and just be playing it because, you know, that's what they can do. But that's where we're at uh, in, in this world. So basically people don't have to, when you say someone that's got lost, they don't really have to mess with that kind of stuff no more because they can have 20 different synths or 30 different synths. I mean, you know, you buy these programs now, they got synths included, sounds included. So, you know, and it's it's overwhelming too when you got like, I had two or three keyboards. So I had to, I was forced to get more out of them or the maximum out of them. People today, they don't have to do that. So do you find it easier to work today? I think like making a track now I, like it, yeah. for, for yourself. Yeah. yeah, I think it's easier to work today. I mean, in general, for anybody. Uh, for me, it, it's it's easy maybe to work, but I might be more critical on releasing something. I might make a track. I might have 100 tracks made, but, you know, I don't necessarily release everything. You know, you, you, you I make music, too, because I, it's a release. It's a, it's a form of uh, meditation for me. So what state are you in while producing? Are you calm or are you, I don't know, is your mind running 
Yeah, yeah. It, 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 you know, most of the time I'm calm. You know, if I'm dealing with vocals, it's a little more in, intense and more involved. Uh, but in general, I'm, I'm pretty calm when I produce. But, you know, sometimes I get visions and, and you know, you feel something right away and you got to re- release it and, and get it out. And uh, that's a that's a unique moment when that happens of creativity because that doesn't just always just pop up when i was younger it popped up all the time now you know i mean you know i got four kids i travel the world most of the time you know there's not a lot of uh just downtime back when i was younger it was it was nothing but downtime so guess what you go in the studio you sleep you wake up you go in the studio you, you, you just repeat the same thing all the time i guess there's more things taking up your mental space now. yes yes so four kids it's quite a lot yeah. these days. I'm one of five, which which I thought was normal, Like, uh, which I thought was, I don't know, growing up in the 90s, one of five didn't seem so right. odd. Right. But now everyone I meet is like one or two brothers and sisters. Yeah, the, yeah. Way, the way the world has gone, one or two is enough, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and how much do you talk with your kids? Well, I know one of, I know one of your sons is yeah. uh, Torn in the me. band. Yeah. yeah. What is it like being a musician dad? You know, I think it's been amazing because I had my kids, all my kids young, except for my daughter. She's 10. But all the rest is, my oldest is 29. Uh, The one that's touring with me, Dantes, is 26. I have a a 21-year-old. And, uh, I mean, we've we've had a great relationship because even when I was torn— you know, younger at my younger age, well, in the beginning, there wasn't as much torn. There was torn for inner city because we had that big success. But as far as DJing, uh, it wasn't as much torn. Then when the DJing started happening, you know, I was coming home. I'd go to England uh, or, the, or Europe for the weekend, and I'd be home. I'd get on that first flight, come back. So I would get the weekdays to either work on music where my kids were in school and spend time with them. So my, all my approach was always get back home. And, you know, if I'm in Australia, Japan, or Asia, somewhere, you know, that's a little more complicated. I have to be gone longer. But in general, I came back home every weekend for all those years and spent lots of time with my kids. And it was just all about family. I'm, I'm a serious family man. I kept my kids in sports. Uh, uh, so they coach right? playing. Huh? You're a, you're a baseball coach. Did you coach? Yeah, I coached yeah, baseball. Yeah. I played baseball. One of my oldest son got drafted. Played for the Philadelphia. No way. Yeah, yeah. He got drafted. That's how involved I was with my kids' life. And he ended up getting injured and getting released eventually. But just to go through that experience was quite amazing. And hearing his name called on the board, exciting times. You know. Wow. Um, did having kids change the way you look at? looked at music as a career, you know, like all of a sudden seeing music as a way to provide? I was already having success with music right as my oldest was born. He was born in 89. Big Fun was already hit. Good good life. So I already seen more money than I ever seen in my life, At you know, especially coming into 90, 91. But I never really thought about that. I thought, like, I wanted to have, I wanted to be a young father and, and have the spirit to enjoy them and be healthy and, and, and be able to, to do that at a young age because I felt like I was still a kid, but I also felt like I was mature enough to handle it at the same time. So, I mean, that's, that was really my approach. Nice. Well, so now we can go back to your son being drafted. Yeah. It's yeah. massive. 
proud dad then. Yeah, yeah, it was it was an amazing moment. Is it is it positions in baseball? Yeah, or yeah. Was it, he was, was it? he was an outfielder. Yeah. He played outfield, and he I think he was drafted in the fifteenth round. It was fifty something rounds then, so that was decent. He played for a couple of years and got to I got to go down to his spring training and experience. Even uh, one of the biggest players got injured, so that when you get injured, they rehab you, so you start back out at the low level just for a second to get you back where you need. So Rodriguez, Alex Rodriguez, who played for the New York, yeah, I was yeah. right there taking all these videos to see my son and, and him on the same field, which you would never think like is possible. So it, it was it was special. Have they all seen you DJ as well? With some of the players? No, oh, my no, kids. No, yeah, your kids. Yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah I mean, they, they grew up questions. They yeah. grew up around it. They probably hated it until, obviously, they be started doing it themselves. But uh, two of them make music and DJ. So those, they, they would tour, like, especially, in, like, movement. Movement, they've been to ever since the very first one. They haven't missed the movement yet. It's like a part of their... They're, they're, you know, it's like a ritual to them. It's like, you know, every year, you know, they we all stay downtown and, they, they you know, they got all their friends coming to the festival and, and they did a few tours with me and travel with me to Ibiza, you know, so they got to experience uh, a decent amount. Was there a moment where uh, you could see where all of a sudden one figured out, hang on, my dad's actually like quite cool. Like where they realized about this yeah. techno. Uh, yeah, it was it was later on in their high school careers, but it was through their friends. Like that's your dad? No, it's not. It was like, what do you mean? Yeah, that's my dad. So what? He's just my dad, you know. Definitely, that's that's happened. Actually, it's happened with three of them. I'm trying to think has it happened with my daughter. My daughter's different. She likes to go around and brag about me. My dad's a DJ. He's famous. You yeah, know, because DJ's cool in America. Right, in right, 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 yeah. right. So she'll go around telling people that. Uh, but uh, other people found out, I don't know, you know, they just found out and went to my kids. My kids were like, Dad, they say you're pretty famous. <laughs> I say, yeah, I do what I do. <laughs> <laughs> do you look back at the past much? I don't know. Of course you do it when we're having conversations like this. But do you, I don't know, when you're at home on the couch, do you... Do you reflect on the past, or are you really looking just forward? Yeah, I, I would say I, 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 there's moments I reflect on the past. Like, let's say if I'm taking a road trip and I'm listening to all kind of music, I, you might, I have some of my tracks in there. I have some of everybody's tracks in there, just a, a collage of music. If you're taking a road trip for 10 hours or driving for 12 hours, those times you reflect to the past. Like, And then you think, like, you know, how things evolved and how things changed. But in general, I would say, I would say no. You know, it's really, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm still pretty much forward thinking and, and moving into the future, you know, as I as I do this, because that's what inspires me. Yeah, you're, you embrace technology. Yes. Maybe that's what's kept you excited about this for so long. Yeah. You know, that's, yeah. maybe that's one of the great things about dance music is that it because of technology, it mm-hmm. does evolve. Yeah. You know, yeah, the but- tools change, so therefore the output changes. Exactly. And- Exactly. And it has evolved for better or for worse. I mean, it's in, 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 you know, it depends on who you're talking to. Some people, ah, well, it should be vinyl. And, you know, well, vinyl destroyed my back, but, you know, and my neck, because carrying these long, these crates and putting shit around your neck, you know, you know, so there's a plus and there's a negative side. It was really good to play vinyl, you know, back then. And, you know, I've experienced always. So, you know, and some people don't get to experience that, but, I think it's uh, 
it's uh technology is 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 exciting. I'm always getting in an argument with Derek May, you know, because he's 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 so much in the past. As much as he was a forward thinker, we you know we get in battles. So I'll be like, Derek, but you don't make any sense because we wouldn't have created techno without technology. And they'd be like, I hate technology. How could you hate technology? There would be no strings of life, you know, stuff like that, you know. So you're in the technology camp, obviously. You're you're defending. Yeah, you're yeah. Defending. definitely. definitely. <laughs> okay, the thing that I always wonder is when the big shifts have happened, okay, so I guess it went from things like vinyl to tractor and Serato, then CDJs, I don't know, then before that it moved away from like analog drum machines to to computers. When these kind of things happened, did it seem really significant? Looking back, these all seemed like significant changes. At the time, was everyone thinking, oh wow, like this has completely changed the game? Or does it kind of just filter in? You know what I mean? I think it, it filters in and it's up to the the producers and the DJ out there to experiment and try it out. And over time, you know, it'll, it'll find its path and way, you know, and what's usable. But I think what happens is, as you mentioned, when it was Final Scratch, obviously it evolved into Tractor and you had Serato and you had those other programs as well that were that was you know in the same family it 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 changed it did change the game for sure because you had people like me saying like i ain't got to worry about losing my records i ain't got to worry about my back so when something like that happens you straight away see the positive yeah i seen that that was my reason you know and i knew like the sound was going to be different but we already head into digital world anyway so you know you can't really control that you can't say ah oh, only analog i'm only going to play vinyl and this and that i mean some people do but you know as you see today there's less options you know even though you know i still press vinyl on especially back catalog stuff and it's you know so you just got to keep open mind uh but you know it's all been impactful in most cases the only thing i would say with technology that you know i wish there was a a a better fix is you know we've gone from physical copies to mp3s or buying waves to now streaming so Something got lost in between where audiences and people will buy physical copies. I feel it is something important about that. Being physically connected to a record or or CD, it's just just lost now. And, And like... I knew this was happening when Napster came out. My kids had all these tracks, and I didn't buy them for them. And they didn't have no money. So I kept saying, like, where, where y'all get all this music from? And they, You know, so that was kind of the beginning of it all. And uh, that's the only thing that's, that's, that has, has kind of destroyed, uh, you know, a lot of the music. Because, first of all, you make music. I make it because I love it. But you also, like, if you're an artist and you, you're trying to make a path for yourself, you have to put out music if you want to tour. You're not going to tour without making music, but you're not going to make no money off of making no music because that, that's almost lost. Now you get the film. Like a business card. Like right. The, yeah, it's a way to get gigs. So, so, but what that does in the end, it really hurts you as a producer. Or what about a writer? What about, like, somebody who just writes they just like to they just great musician but they don't they don't dj they just want to write music or contribute you know work with a producer and 
back in the day, they could make a living, take care of their family because, you know, they make money. Now, if nothing sells, nothing get played, then, you know, it's just less. So that's the only thing that's that's really damaging about how technology has changed things. Do you think people still connect with music the same way? Obviously, the that's the financial like aspect. I just wonder if now of streaming, because everything is at your fingertips, if people will skip from one thing to the other much faster than when they used to. In the old day, you'd buy a CD. You listen to it. Yeah, exactly. You maybe got enough money for one CD a month. Right. You listen to that CD fifty times sure. more, fifty times a week, maybe. You know. I think people connect to the artist or the DJ or the producer more than they connect to the music. That's what I think. And it depends really how well your social media and if you're in the moment, if you, you know, you might not even necessarily necessarily make great music, but because of your profile is you're just on point and and people gravitate to you for where however you got them there is seem like that's where it's gone more than than gravitating towards the music you know even when you put a track up uh and you say like this is the name of the track you still get people talking about so uh what's the name of that track and you'd be like well it's right there in the title you know stuff like that so it tells you you know as much as they say oh, what's the name of the track they don't really it's right there so <laughs> that's funny <laughs> Um, so you mentioned represses. You're repressing a lot of the e-dance stuff. Yeah. 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 Uh, how do you decide what gets repressed? Um, these are great reissues. Um, well, I think it has to stand the time, stand the test of time and being able to sound good. With some of the stuff I reshaped just to, to modernize a, a little, uh, just, you know, but kept the original, original elements just to do a better mix on it. But, uh, it really, as long as it stands the test of time, and I feel like it's, it, 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 it doesn't sound like it's, you know, 30 years old or something like that. That's it, what's important to me. Is it easy for you to judge what has stood the test of time? Because I guess it's hard for you to be objective, you know? How do you know? I, I think because I'm out here, I'm always listening. My ears, you know, I'm listening to, to, to what's going on, and I feel like I— I was blessed with this skill from the first place and in, in, in my talents. So it's a part of me. So I, I don't think I I lose touch, really. I think I'm always really right there at, the, at on point and And, you know, I can hear it from all angles, you know. Isn't it interesting, though, like what does stay timeless? For me, it's like always the stuff that's the most reduced. Like there aren't too many elements. It's some, but isn't that the, that's also the amazing thing about dance music? Just a great bassline, yeah. a nice rhythm. Yeah. It's good for thirty years because as long as it's, as long as it's recorded good enough and and mastered really good and you know and comes across on whatever format, then that is a true true thing. Being raw enough. And less elements. Some, a lot of time, less is good. You know, less is actually great in in many ways. You know, um, so it definitely. Anyway, especially when you talk about people dancing, because there's certain elements that make you move, and you really only need a few of them. To, to be honest, you need the right few, but you don't need a few of them to to grab you. Yeah, and also when I think of, when I think of e dancer, like it's very emotional music, yeah. and it's also very reduced. Yeah. This has got to be the hardest thing to do in dance music, and it's not—it's not obvious melodies. They're strange and twisted, 
yet somehow they have this strong emotion. And I guess that's the thing about dance music that you just can't put words on somehow. You know, like... Right. Yeah, it's so hard to ex- try and explain why some tracks have it and some don't. Yeah, yeah, I think it comes from within your vision and how you your inner feelings, how you put that across musically, you know, because anybody can play any bass line, but that doesn't mean somebody else is going to feel what you're feeling or they can feel. Yeah, basically, they can't feel what you're feeling or they might not be to feel, but it depends on how you bring that across. And that's part of being a producer. And that's part of what you feel inside, too. I guess, yeah, a lot of it is explained by the person's character i guess you know some characters some personalities are suited to transmitting emotion into oh definitely definitely i mean i think that's an important part that's that makes the difference between feeling feeling a person and connecting to them in comparison to not and those tracks usually stand the test of time you know so as part of this conversation you know emotion in music you know all this kind of stuff do you think there's good and bad music or do you think it's all subjective? I think any music you make and you that you feel is your personality, how it should come out, it's music. It's, it's you. Now, that doesn't mean it works for me or the next person. Does it mean it's bad? I wouldn't say it's bad, but I would say it doesn't... It, if, if I hear a track that I don't necessarily like, if I don't feel it, then it doesn't work for me. If it doesn't do anything for me, that doesn't mean it's bad. It just means whatever area you're in, whatever you're trying to do, it doesn't, it's not captured by my ears or emotionally, I'm not connected to it. So that's what works for me musically, same as when I make it. So it has to grab me. Uh, I have to feel something. It has to have something that make me gravitate towards it. So, you know, I try not to say, like, people make bad music, especially, you know, everybody feels different. Everybody have a different way of portraying. So, you know, we, we all do it differently. Yeah, I guess that's the best answer. But then it's so fascinating because then when you talk about choosing tracks to repress, you know, like somehow it's objective because you can hear this This has stayed timeless. This one hasn't. But that's your judge. That's in your ears. That's on your feeling. That's on your experience. And and only I think that person can make that determination. And some people don't, won't touch their records ever. They'd be like, it was done. That's the only way. I never would do my record over again. I've had conversations like that with some of the Detroit guys. But, you know, everybody's different. Because for me, it's it's just this this thing with this '90s music. It's so in, inexplicable how it can still be so powerful, right? Now you know, with such few elements. But, but I think everything goes in circles, and when you have have something that was created that that really grabs people, and you know, I mean, that's why you you find a lot of people trying to recreate or sound like stuff in the past uh, with technology of today. It, it seems like it always finds a, a period where it happens. You know what I mean? So, uh, because they're looking for inspiration, and then where they get the inspiration from, it's 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 from people like us. You know, I mean, I got my inspiration from disco. Now, some it's some disco records I listen to, I still think are amazing, and then it's some I'd be like, man, that that don't do it for me no more like it used to. So, you know, some just last forever. You know? Yeah. 
the fact that you like disco, I guess that also explains why your inner city and a lot of your productions were so upbeat and yeah, positive. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I used to go to the Paradise Garage and listen to Larry LeVan, who's, you know, that's one of the first DJs I started listening to. And I started going to this, this, this what they call a juice bar, which is Paradise Garage in New York. Because I'm, originally I'm from New York. I used to go back summertime and I used to hear him play you know, it was like probably 95% gay men. And it was just this amazing experience to to hear and see people have this love for music. And then like, then when he played a vocal record or something like um, Sister Sledge or, or you know, a Chic record or whatever, uh, Shaka Khan, uh, there's plenty of them, Donna Summers, you know, how it mingled with maybe some music that was more instrumental based, but you would just see it, it touched people in such a positive way. So yes, I was inspired to, when I started making dance music, my goal was not just to be underground. I wasn't trying to be commercial either. I was just making music that I thought would fit with a vocalist that could touch people that they could dance to. It could be played in the club. And people could listen to and sing in melodies because that's the way, you know, I was inspired. So, of course. is that, Have you seen anything since that could compare to Paradise Garage or Larry LeVan? Because, like, if you're trying to explain how it was, is there any comparison that you could make? Yeah, I, I don't really know, man, because, you know, for me to, to go into this club, I mean, the first time I was blown away you know, there's clubs that open up at 12 and finish at 12. Uh, I mean, it's probably not that many no more. But the fact that it opened at 12 midnight and finished at 12 the next day, when you walked out, it was just, you know, the sun was beaming. It was bright. And back then, you know, the system was also amazing. I felt like it was bigger, the room, than it was. But when I look back at pictures, it really wasn't that big, you know. But, uh, you know, the fact that you had these these the people that were there, the way they embraced the music. I don't know if I've seen anything like that. I've seen something similar in the UK when, it, when the rave scene took off, you know. Uh, but the only difference is they were on ecstasy in the UK and stuff like that. So it it it, it, it like it almost put all these same people on the same wave. So like other people taking these pills and it's like they were just feeling the same thing. They was dancing the same way. And the difference in, and I'm sure people were doing drugs in, in the Paradise Garage too, but I wasn't aware. Uh, it wasn't even no alcohol. It was just a juice bar. So, but I'm sure, you know, it was some, it's always drugs related and something. But it was just, you know, the, the way they would dance to music, it was so much love in the movement it was different too, because like you're still talking about gay men spinning and stuff, but it was so on point, you know, to see how this music was, they were embracing this music. So I don't know if there's anything like that because it was like that, but the, the, I guess the closest was the rave scene to see all these people on one point kind of connected to a track or uh, a, a certain song. I wonder if the fact the the fact that it was so new had something to do with this, yeah. you know. What part? The Paradise Garage. Yeah, yeah. Well, the fact that what Larry Levan was doing was so different to everyone else. Yeah, it was definitely different because you know, like when you heard records, you hear some of the same records he played on the radio, but he would play like these records for an hour sometimes, like one record, 
and you start it over. Just the fact that he could start it over, people would just be just screaming at the beginning and then keep the beginning going for like 20 minutes. Like just basically, and that's how we got inspired to make music. When you think about it, when you hear like a track, maybe, I don't know if you know a song that I did called The Sound. Yeah, it, of course. It's, it's, it's very raw. It, it's, it, you know, you Go know, you think about, right. You think about stuff like that. I think about stuff like that sometime when I'm creating and it was just, you know, a repetitiveness, you know, but at the same time, at a certain point, he would bring the other part of the song in, but it might take 20 minutes. So what would he play with the, the sound? Like some vocal, like. I actually never heard him play the yeah. sound. <laughs> I never heard Larry play any of my records because it was almost Damn. over by the end. So I didn't get a chance. And then Inner City took off as the Paradise Garage was, was ending. And I was just on the road, but I never, I've heard, when I, last time I went to the Paradise Garage, I, I seen like uh, uh, I think it was called what was it Master C and J uh, a, a track called Faces by Liz Torres and she performed it live there and that was like huge it was a huge house tune from Chicago uh, and a, another track called Hercules but outside of that you know, most of the house music that he started playing uh, in early Detroit music I never got to experience and play you know even though when I was creating it, I sure was visualizing it. And I know he played it, you know. Yeah, you have to find out from yeah. someone. I heard Frankie Knuckles. I heard Ron Hardy yeah. play our stuff, but not never Larry. What would Frankie Knuckles mix? What would he do with something like the sound? Well, well, I don't know what he did with the sound. I didn't hear him play the sound, but I heard him play Strings of Life. I heard him play Rhythm is Rhythm. Uh, when I went, to, like, for the first time to hear him play... It was early days too when Derek Derek had tucked him his record. I think a few weeks ago we went back to take him my record. Uh, so I heard him play, you know, stuff like that, you know, which was still quite amazing to hear. You know, I'm here with my buddy and he's getting his record played and people screaming like crazy. You know, it was called the warehouse or something like that. Yeah. And back in those days, would you look at DJs like that and just think they were on another level? You know. Yeah, because obviously by then you were a competent. Like I would say, you were a good DJ by then. Yeah, you know, I, I was still even. I mean, even when I first started hearing Frankie, obviously when I was hearing Larry, I wasn't even a DJ. I didn't even know I was going to be a DJ. So you, so this was before you uh, started oh, yeah, doing yeah. music. I didn't yeah, realize yeah. that. Oh yeah, Larry was Larry, especially because eighteen years old, I started hearing Larry. Maybe seventeen. By the time I was twenty one, I was I was either making music or started DJing. That kind of was the end, you know, almost somewhere right around there. But I heard Frankie play at, as I was playing, but I wasn't like on his level because he had these amazing tracks it seemed like he had everything like drum machine running i mean just everything you know and ron hardy might have been the most amazing dj i've seen as far as skill level because he would play different larry was up top in the paradise so you didn't really see him much you kind of seen his head a little and it wasn't that wasn't a big thing watching the dj you just knew who was playing right uh, it was just all about being lost and embraced in the music. And Frankie was, uh, you know, just a classic kind of DJ. Didn't miss his breaks, played records for a long time, and played great music, right? Ron Hardy would, would he changed changed the game. I think that's where Derek Ray got a lot of his skills from, and some of the Detroit guys, because he would mess with the EQ and do stuff differently, bring the kick in, take the kick out. He would, he would do, he had a little different look, and he played pretty fast, actually. He played his music faster than everybody else. New York was pretty much groovy and, you know, 115 to 120 would be fast. Well, Ron was already at 125 and, and rocking, maybe faster. 
Interesting. You've definitely experienced something that most uh, house and techno producers haven't. The fact that uh, inner city was so huge in the UK, you're like pop stars. Yeah, yeah, that was that was that was a trip. So what? Like, describe it to me. You're in you're in the UK. You're getting stopped in the streets. I, you know, I I had busloads of girls running after me one time in Liverpool, and I thought like this got to be a dream. You know, I mean like. First of all, I went. I remember this distinctly. I was in Liverpool. And we did this show. It was a big concert because we was big at the time. And I called myself going to walk out into the crowd, but I was. I wasn't thinking like, you know, nobody's going to attack me. All these girls started screaming, trying to grab me. I had to jump back into the, the crowd, right? So after that, I had to jump back behind stage because I didn't just. I just caught me off guard. So now we we trying to get to the hotel, and you got like I don't know, I don't know, three hundred girls outside with a, our tour buses that. They screaming and, and, you know, whatever, trying to run after the bus. I get back to the hotel, and it's still like, I don't know, I don't know, 50 girls outside. Just, you know, just, I don't know. It was it was weird. So, but, but I never wanted to be in the limelight. I wanted to produce, make music, stay in the studio. I, I almost was forced to come out because I, the way I started in the city, you know, and the way I signed the contract, I almost had to be on these shows and be a part of it. I mean, it was my creation, of course, along with bringing Paris Gray a part of it, but it was really more about, uh, I just wanted to make music and, and be able to DJ it, but I was actually, I, I wasn't able to DJ at that time because it was so busy, and I was doing pop shows, and like, what I'm going to do on a pop show, uh, Paris is the singer, she could sing, obviously, I'm not a singer, uh, I knew it sounded good, of course, because, you know, I, I had good ears and I still have good ears, I believe. Uh, but what are you doing on a show like Top of the Pops? I'm sitting up here playing a keyboard that I ain't really playing. That just felt so stupid to me, you know, stuff like that, uh, you know. But it was a part of, you know, I guess our success. So I went with the flow, but I didn't enjoy that part. And then we went out live uh, for the first time and did Town and & Country and all these other places we were doing. And that was a bit tricky because I didn't know how to take the studio on the road at that point. It was just too, too early. But so I had a real band. People uh, from Detroit lived in my building that were musicians, replay myself, you know, similar to the record. And we would sample certain sounds so it sound like it. But it never was right to me, even though the crowd seemed to love it, because I, as far as I'm concerned, I was an electronic group that was very syncopated well you know when you play live it's not syncopated it's you know you sync with each other but you it's all based off a of human feel so it didn't feel natural i mean you know it wasn't it didn't even feel as tight as like a disco record would have felt uh but you know we got through it and you know we had some great tours and it was just a a different and unique experience so what's the band set up now? So the difference is I bring the studio on stage. So first off, it's a studio first. Obviously, you know, we still got a singer. She's still, you know, it's a different singer, but she's very dynamic and, and, and performs very well, you know. And like when we do festivals, it's I still bring other musicians on stage to play. And like me and Dantes, we we play on top in certain sections. Some sections we do an effect. Certain sections we're arranging. We're just controlling the flow of the arrangement. 
That's the best way to say so it. So it's more growling. Is there pauses between the tracks? Or there's some like pauses. A, yeah. there, there's some pauses, yeah. Like maybe two or three during the whole show, uh-huh. you know, and then we can decide what direction we want to go in. If we want to start it with this or break it down, stuff like that we have set up. Uh, you know, we're using controllers and, you know, but it's 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 powerful because what I've seen so far on the tour is we're reaching we're playing for, still for young audience. We're not playing for people that knew in the city back in the nineteen eighties. We're playing for new audience that are intrigued by us. And what I what I'm seeing so far is these young audience they they've been great because. I don't know if they're seeing the type of dynamics that Stephanie, the singer, is bringing to the stage. It's, it's some, it seems like it's something lost in dance music, and maybe that's not going on as much. Obviously, I'm not out here. I don't know every act, but that's what it feels like. And it's like a new experience for them. And some it starts out a little slow, and they're unsure. But I tell you what, by the time we get to the middle, of the the, the, the uh, especially when they hear Big Fun, it's all over. And it's just been, been amazing to see that, which – Tells me there's a gap and there's a void and there's something that's needed. So what other plans do you have for it? You're on the 30-year tour now. Do you have more planned for later in the year? Yeah. We, well, we're going we're gonna to tour all summer. We're going to tour some more uh, in, I think, November, December. And we're working on new music. So our goal is to get new music out. You, you know, even though it's a 30-year tour, it, it, when you hear the, the tour, it, you're going to hear two or three new tracks already that – you would people won't know big fun and good life all my stuff is modified so nothing sounds like then obviously there's a connection so it sounds like today and and we're still all about the future yeah tell me about it you have a special relationship with remixes so now if we go back in time now the remix we know history there's been people like shep pettibone jellybean benitez and more others even Larry the Van. But like when they did remixes right back then, it was really re editing someone's track. Making something more making DJ extend, friendly or something. Making yeah. taking the intro. But it wasn't like they went in and did what what is done today. The difference between back then and what is done today, it really started when I did the Wee Papa Girl Rappers in nineteen eighty eight, where I didn't use any of their music. I put all new music. And I used some of the vocals and sampled it, and it became this new track. It blew people away. The record company didn't know what to do. They was like, well, where's the song? And they wasn't sure, but they ended up putting it out to DJs. And it you know, it won all these awards with this big remix of the year, and it, it changed the game. I mean, it, it changed it in a good and a bad way, I should say, <laughs> because, you know, back then I, people wanted me to do so many remixes you know, it, it it was a bit much, and we used to do, do a these new remixes. track every time. <laughs> yeah, basically, you was doing a new track every time. Is you know, unless you really heard something like it was certain songs I, I kept elements because I actually really loved the productions in the beginning. It was you just did a remix because you managed to say, "Hey, I got a remix for you." Like, all right, let me do it. It wasn't because like you, it was something about the track you liked. It was just you did it because it was an opportunity. Uh, but there was tracks, uh, you know, I did a, a remix for Yellow. I did a remix for uh, Depeche Mode. I did a remix for New Order. Of course, th- there's certain elements in those tracks that there was a connection. Uh, and, you know, you, you kept stuff more than than getting rid of it. But that was another elevation 
for myself and from Detroit because as soon as I was doing it, Derek was doing it. Wom was doing it. Before you know it, I mean, the whole world is doing it. And hip-hop started doing it. And so everybody, so it, it, that came from Detroit, that that elevation of the remix, you know. So that's yeah. all. So another, that's another thing that originated in Detroit. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. What's your social life like in Detroit? Like you've got your family. How often do you sit around and chat about music with people? Yeah, I don't know if I chat about music with people a lot. Myself, we got a a, a chain uh, on our phone. It's a it's got me, Derek, Mary, Carl, Craig, Kenny Larkin, Stacy Pullen, Juan Atkins. So we. You know, we communicate about many different things, sometimes politics, sometimes music, you know, and it depends on what's on somebody's mind at the time. That's that's been around for four or five years now. It's the same chain. You know, sometimes we get yelling at each other. We get mad at each other. So in my social life, it seemed like with them guys mainly on, on that chain. Uh, so that exists. <laughs> what's yeah. up, group? Yeah, it yeah. definitely, definitely exists. Sometimes you wake up and you got 80 messages like, what the hell? You know, it's because there's a debate, you know, with Derek May and Carl Craig or Kenny Larkin and Stacey Pullen or whatever. But, you know, it's it's all, you know, we have a lot of love for each other. And, and you know, uh, uh, so we don't always see each other. But then there's times we, we get together and eat dinner together and get the families together and do stuff together, too. Uh, Stacy's daughter was just in this uh, some kind of uh, I don't think it was a beauty contest, but it was some kind of magazine cover contest. And you say, hey, vote for my daughter, blah, blah, blah. So we all did that and just stuff like that. Um um, so I'm still connected to those guys very well. And then, you know, I have a few friends that I grew up with, going to college with, that I still communicate with. And sometimes I get together and and go to, like, a Piston game or stuff like that with some of those guys. Uh, it's minimal, but it's enough, you know, with family. And, and then, you you know, you always got your, 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 your Facebook and all that. Oh, not Facebook, uh, um, FaceTime, so you can, you know, call back home and see each other and stuff like that, so. Yeah, of course. And since the tour is a 30-year, it's like celebrating a milestone, how different are you as a person now compared to 30 years ago? Just more season, more experience. I've seen the world uh, several times. Uh, I've experienced a lot. So when you when you experience things that you haven't, you, you you don't have too much anxiety, if any anxiety about it. When you first out here and you first traveling, you got anxiety. Uh, you don't know, you know, it's unknown territory. So what would you get anxiety about? Like if people are going to like your music or not, or social situations, or well, what? Well, more more about like the the tools you were playing on if they had the right mixer or if they had a mixer that you like you know or if you get up you, you know even when I started playing on CDJs it's like it had to be a CDJ it couldn't be a denim or something like that you know stuff like that uh uh you know if you went to an after party was it safe you know even though you know America wasn't the safest place in the world but it was you know it was different so you would you would you know you out of your zone of comfort so you know you just had to be you know those those type of things i guess now you've seen it all not much I, I, could really yeah I've, I've seen it i've seen a lot i mean i'm 30 30 plus years of it so you know uh you know even when i you know i'm on my with my son and he's traveling with me and you know so he does some interviews every night especially when we do in the city 
And you know, so he gets anxiety about interviews. I don't get no anxiety about no interviews because I done done like 10 million. <laughs> so like I tell him, in time, it, it, it improved because you're gonna hear usually the same questions over and over and over. And you and if you experience it, it's easy to explain because you've been through it. 